Hello, awesome humans. I just want to mention that this episode with Tatiana was recorded prior to me going through my very first guided psychedelic trip using ketamine. And Tatiana was the psychologist guiding me through the entire experience, which was fantastic and incredibly insightful. I held on to this episode so that I could release it post-trip, knowing that I was going to conduct an interview talking about my experience and how I adjusted or tweaked my own mental fitness practices based on what surfaced during my session. So the interview is up on the blog over at the Beatrice Society, which is where Tatiana is the chief medical officer. I'll include the link in the show notes if you want to check it out. No pressure to do that, but I thought I'd at least mention that there uh, is a conclusion to what we talk about in this episode and that I went through that experience with her. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I hope you're all thriving and be well. All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Behind the Human. I'm your host, Mark Champagne, and it's my job to unpack the stories and mental fitness practices of people living at the top of their game personally and professionally. Today, I'm speaking with clinical psychologist, Dr. Tatiana Zeb. I say that right? Yeah, Zeb. Yeah. So, Zeb. So hard. Zeb. So hard. I Perfect. said it right in the, in the, in the practice, though. <laughs> Anyway, we've got Tatiana on the line here. She has over a decade of experience providing psychological services to adults and has been studying psychedelic medicine for over 25 years. Tatiana also serves as the chief medical officer of the Beatrice Society, a guide to the world of healing plants and alternative therapies. I am so excited to have you on the show. We are going, this is, there's so many firsts in terms of our conversation here. First of all, first person to come on the show to talk about psych, psychedelics um, and then everything related to obviously their, their benefits and we'll, I'm sure we'll draw some links to mental fitness and so forth. But then also just for everyone listening, we're about to essentially embark on a what do we call this, Tatiana? Like a ex, an experiment with their host, me, essentially, because who has, just for context, who I've never tried any type of psychedelics. And for whatever reason, in the last couple of years, from multiple people, I've had these like inquiries or conversations where I've been asked, have you ever thought about writing any type of mental fitness guides in association specifically to, you know, the integration piece of people that have gone through these various trips? And it just keeps coming up. I'm like, I, sure. I, I mean, I've never thought about it because I've never done any of this. I've, I'm, I'm part of a men's group that uh, most of the guys have. So I'm exposed in that sense. But I am so naive to all of this. And what we're going to do, this is part one of a conversation where we're just going to introduce uh, you know, the, the, the topic to listeners and myself, frankly, because I'm coming in again, very naive and, and, and at this point purposeful so that I'm not jading or directing the conversation. Um, and then I'm going to go through an experience with you in the coming uh, weeks or months. And I'm going to write essentially my own mental fitness protocol with the naive mind that I have in this world. And then we're going to see together how that worked, what comes up, and ideally, you know, work together on some sort of integration uh, of mental fitness and all of the, the stunning work that you do. So if I've left anything out of, of that, let me know. We're going to document everything, uh, which, is, which is also fun and, and, and new. And yeah, like I have a mix of nerves and excitement just even talking about this with you. How are you feeling, uh, Tatiana, about the whole thing? <laughs> Just like you, I'm really excited. And I think it's such a privilege and a, and a pleasure for me to be able to be the one to launch you into the altered state of consciousness that you will Woo! experience while under the influence of ketamine. And so I'm really excited and so grateful to be doing yeah. this with you, Mark. And I promise I'm going to take excellent care of you. You are in good hands. Oh, thank you. I, I mean, and, and right back at you, honestly, I'm, I couldn't feel... Uh, more happy and grateful to, to have you part of this journey. We've had a few conversations now and, uh, you know, there's just a natural connection and flow. So I'm, I'm super pumped to go through it and, and I'm happy it's you. So 
So for everyone listening, to be continued. For now, though, let's start the show like we normally do. And that is, before we get into the whole topic and 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 everything that we want to discuss and get into your, your, you know, I've already mentioned some of your titles and your credentials and so forth. We drop all of that stuff. Just who are you? Like, who are you as a, as a, just a human being? I love this question. And I'm going to answer this question with love. So I'm a lover, Mark. I'm a lover of knowledge, much like you very much identify as a philosopher. I love people. I think that's part of what makes me so good at the work I do in guiding people back to themselves is I genuinely have a deep love for yeah. other people. I love experiences. Of course, I love psychology. And I would even go as far as to say, uh, to some extent, I love challenges sure. because of the opportunities for growth and learning that they sure. provide. And of course, I love my friends and my family and yeah. food and wine and all just states of consciousness. <laughs> Well, well, doesn't it always come back? I mean, if I'm thinking of all the reading I've done, I feel like everything comes back to love and presence in some capacity. It's like if you can unlock th- those variables and be able to, you know, put ego aside or put this aside and that and stress and fear and all these different things, usually, at least what I'm hearing, is it comes back to love and, and just consciousness in, in a way, Right. What, have you always been like this? Like, where, where, where how, how, what's the journey, or how, how have you gotten to this place of, uh, you know, identifying as just, you know, being really just lit up by love, essentially? Well, as you noted in the introduction, I've been studying psychedelic medicine for a couple decades now, almost 30 years. And one of my first psychedelic experiences helped me identify. A, a real sense of embodied knowledge of what Einstein said about separateness mm. being an illusion. And that's what led to me doing my undergrad in theoretical physics and psychology. Um, And so having that embodied experience of feeling that connection to other people, to the universe, and feeling inspired by that. And and then I started reading Freud. And I know that Freud gets a bad (laughs) rep in in a lot of ways, but I do think that there's more good with him than bad. And, uh, And so he talked about it's the love that heals in a Mm. psychotherapeutic relationship. Um, And I know that there's a lot of talk in the field about risk of addiction, and I certainly don't mean to minimize that, but I think it's as easily um, possible for people to become addicted to the love that they feel from their therapist, that unconditional, I'm not talking about sexual love, just that Rogerian sense of unconditional positive regard. And so few of us have that experience. And so I learned at a really young age that that, that kind of love is, is incredibly possible. healing and possible, yeah. exactly. And that we can really promote that in ourselves and, uh, and in other people and foster deeper connections. Amazing. Amazing. Well, so you mentioned that you've been studying psychedelics for over, over 25 years. And like probably everyone in the world that is somewhat interested in psychedelics, I recently, th- this is my only knowledge of psychedelics, I recently binge watched the the documentary that I'm sure everyone has watched at this point, <laughs> uh, How to Change Your Mind, uh, and which is guided or hosted by Michael Pollan, and I think v- very much based on his book, right? I can't remember, was that 2018 or uh, titled how to, how to Change Your Mind? And wow, did I, I really, I learned, I was so almost shocked about how everything has played out in the psychedelics world. And like, I had no idea about the the backstory or the history of how kind of they came to be and basically how they were like wiped out, or I should say the research was wiped out. Um, and again, I don't, I, you know, I don't want to, you know, spark conspiracy theories. I'm just kind of reporting back uh, what I watched in that documentary, but it seems like largely due to, the U.S. government shutting down the research and, uh, you know, uh, trying to get more people recruited to the Vietnam War and, and so forth. So how, like, it sounds like it was around that time, loosely, that that you became interested or, or shortly thereafter in in this research. Like, how, how did it come up for, for you? I became really interested in individual differences and trying to understand just at my own familial level why it was that growing up in the same environment, my brother and sister and I 
had different psychological outcomes based on our early childhood experiences. And Mm. one of the things that my brother and I have in common that my sister doesn't share with us, just by virtue of her being uh, younger than us at the time, is that we did psychedelics at uh, a young age. Now, I'm not recommending this. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, we were we were lucky to have really positive experiences of it. But that led me to thinking about a hypothesis around is the reason that my brother and I didn't develop any, you know, psychological issues as a result of the childhood environment due to the fact that we did LSD mm. as teenagers? And did that prevent connections from being formed in our developing brains around the trauma that we experienced. And that got me interested in doing a deep dive on the research around synaptogenesis and how psychedelics can promote the growth of new neural connections, repair damaged neurons, um, create So did you stick with it then? Because there was like, during that period then, it seemed like everything kind of shut down. It was all underground essentially. There was very little, re- like it. When did the research really start to pick up? Again, about, I guess. Yeah, about ten years ago, I would okay. say. Um, and uh, but in the time in between, um, like a lot of people that were interested in this work and didn't have legal channels to be able to explore it. And my being, I am actually quite risk averse in a lot of ways. My colleagues okay. in this space will kind of um, lovingly chirp me about sure. how conservative I am in terms of dosing and, and experiences. So because of that, you know, risk aversion, I grew my own psilocybin so okay. that I would have control over the environment and know exactly, you know, what it was being exposed to and, and started microdosing. Okay. And noticed that that kept some of those insights that I experienced from like big LSD trips yeah. With my brother, I was able to maintain some of those gains by okay. microdosing really infrequently, like less frequently than the Fatiman protocol. Okay. Okay. Let's, I feel like, and even for myself, let's, let's take this from a very general, uh, standpoint or, or view, but just like, what are, what are psychedelics? Like where do, what there's, cause there's a few different you know, options in, I guess, the class of this, this, these medicines, right? Like what, what are the things available to us? And I guess like what at, at its core, what's happening? Yeah. So, um, the traditional sort of tripped in, um, psychedelics are, are, um, psilocybin, LSD, and, uh, and then aside from that, we have like MDMA, which some people argue has a psychedelic component when we define psychedelic as mind manifesting. If we're thinking oh, okay. about psychedelics in a more traditional sense of, you know, auditory and visual hallucinations, then I think people think about the more tryptamine based ones like psilocybin and LSD, for example, whereas MDMA is often thought of as more of an empathogen. Okay. And um, and has its effects by mechanism of increasing empathy with people, and then gotcha. um, and then there's other classes that I'm not as familiar with, just because I don't work with those compounds. But things like uh, peyote, uh, DMT, five uh, meo, that would be considered psychedelic as well under the broadest definition of that. Sure. And, and to your question about like what are, what are they doing, the mechanisms by which these compounds are having their mental fitness or psychotherapeutic effects are still largely unknown. So we have hypotheses around quieting of the default mode network, which okay. are parts of the brain that are associated with self-referential behavior. So so egoic, yeah, things. And then of course I mentioned the synaptogenic hypothesis so this idea that if we sprinkle a bit of miracle grow on people's brain cells that that can promote health in a number of different ways i I think another hypothesis more from the mental fitness angle is that it promotes connection flexibility and objectivity and you you mentioned earlier that love is often referred to as you know one of the common um, experiences that people have is just feeling this renewed or maybe for the first time in their lives sense of connection to things beyond themselves 
And I would argue that in in addition to that, the use of psychedelics and these expansive states of consciousness that we can arrive at, even using small dosages of things like psilocybin or LSD, really does increase our connection, not just to other people, but to spirituality, to nature, to different parts of ourselves. I mean, fear, insecurities, trauma cause us to be disconnected from parts of ourselves and things get fragmented off. And um, and then I think it it allows us to take a step back because of the dissociative experience that, that people have when they're under the influence of these medicines or compounds, being able to take that step back and see ourselves outside of ourselves just gives us a different perspective. So that would be the objectivity piece. And then the flexibility of being able to come at things from different angles and explore how we're experiencing things from different perspectives, I think is a great mental fitness tool. Yeah, well, I was going to, I mean, just even as you're saying that, like a lot of the things that you're mentioning are very much linked to what I try to do with questions. But I mean, I can only go so far, obviously, with with some of these prompts to, because for me, the, the, the prompts just offer a pause in whatever looping narrative's running, or it doesn't have to be that. It could be even in a work, you know, in a from a work perspective where you have a certain perspective on something and then all of a sudden a question changes it or, or forces in some 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 new thought. The the challenge though that that I normally experience when working with teams is that and, and I'm generalizing here of course, but people's minds are very full, right? Myself included. I mean there's a lot going on in the world. And to to be able to answer those questions very clear and with intention usually you've got to do something to just slow down the chatter and and release some of the tension that people are already coming in with right and we did we i mean we did a, a nice just literally one breath together before we hit record just to both you know for for us to level set um so i'm i'm ex- i'm so excited this is what i'm what what i'm most excited for is to pair the prompts with the benefits of these medicines because i i guess what i saw yeah go ahead go ahead Oh, no, exactly. I'm sorry. I'm I'm so excited to hear you talk about it in that way, because that's exactly what I designed the TRIP protocol to do is to raise consciousness. I always hear TRIP, these TRIP protocols. What what is that? This is my chance to ask the dumb questions. (laughs) No, it's not a dumb question at all. Uh, So TRIP, in terms of the protocol that I developed, stands for Therapeutic Reset of Internal Processes. And... um, To quote Glenn Gabbard, we are consciously confused and subconsciously controlled. So I designed, I'll say that again, we are subconsciously controlled and consciously confused. So what that means is we walk around not really being consciously aware of what is motivating our behavior, what is influencing our responses. So going back to what you said about everybody's mind is so full and so busy And that distracts us from being able to understand what is going on underneath all of of that noise. And so I designed the protocol to help quiet the mind in a way that allows other things to come to the surface. Because psychotherapeutically, giving somebody psilocybin or ketamine causes them to be way less censored. And so things are able to come into conscious awareness and then we can work with that material. So to your point about if I, if, if I give somebody a prompt in just regular psychotherapy, their ego will defend against a lot of vulnerability. Um, People will censor themselves. If I give that same person, just even a small dosage, like 200 milligrams of oral ketamine, all of a sudden they're able to respond to the question in incredibly different ways. Sure. Hello, friends. Given you're here, I'm making the assumption that you're motivated to be mentally fit. So with that in mind, I want to let you know about the Better Questions newsletter, which publishes once or twice a month, providing all of us the opportunity to slow down, think, and ask better questions. As you know, quality questions are my thing, and this is an opportunity to share the prompts I've studied and curated to help our minds be healthier, clearer, more intentional, and expand our mental capacity. 
you can sign up over at behindthehuman.com slash newsletter, which will also give you a preview of my debut book, Personal Socrates. That's behindthehuman.com slash newsletter. Now back to the show. And how long does that, how, do, how long does that last? Because it seems like some, some medications are, some of the medicines are different in that, you know, you, you, you go through that experience one or two times and you have these like lasting benefits. I guess what I saw or what the, the big theme I picked up from that documentary was there was almost like this theme of, I, and I'm generalizing here, but people like their current self dying away in some capacity and then them like coming back to life in, in, in a way. And all of a sudden everything is just so much more vibrant like during and but also post it's like you i don't know again i haven't gone through this but from what i'm seeing in that documentary it's like you feel the air more or you see like when you take a walk in the forest it's like you're more connected with the trees and and whatnot right so yeah like in that whole rant i forgot what i had originally asked you but if you remember go for (laughs) it how long it lasts yeah Yeah, how long does this experience last so the the effect lasts longer than the drug effects. So long after the effects of any of these compounds that we're talking about is metabolized by the body at a physical level, we see okay. the, the the growth, the psychotherapeutic effects lasting. And it depends on the person, but in my clinical and personal experience, without like doing another trip session, people will still be deriving benefit six months later up to a year later in some cases now, much like you, Mark, I really think that the integration is important. I love what you wrote about in Personal Socrates, that mindfulness helps quiet the mind, so the meditation practice, but then journaling helps us unpack everything that comes up when we're meditating or any new insights that we have. And so you describing that in Personal Socrates is a really great example of how we do integration work in psychedelic psychotherapy. So in my case, I think, you know, the integration will prolong the effect. And one of the things that's really novel about the TRIP protocol that you're going to undergo is um, there's no other protocols that I'm aware of right now in anywhere in the world where the therapist is actually transcribing the data that is coming up. So as, as you and I are in session, I'm going to record the session with your permission, but I'm also going to be just jotting down key things that are coming up. And then I'm going to analyze that data in between your trip session and our integration session. And I'm going to create a document where I have key themes and supporting information just so that you don't think I pulled them out of thin air. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And, um, And I'm going to let you go first and tell me what you think the most meaningful aspects of the experience were for you so that, you know, I'm not clouding your perception with front-loading my take on it. And then I'm going to share what my key themes and takeaways were. And then we get to go back and forth about what resonates with you about, you know, the themes that I identified, how much overlap there is between the two. And then you and I are going to co-construct meaning around your experience and then use that to inform integration next steps so that we can keep the momentum going. So I'm going to give you homework to do, to keep these connections. And again, like very much in line with that synaptogenic hypothesis, it's all well and good to promote the growth of new neurons. But if we don't use those new connections, then they get pruned is the clinical term for it. And that's just when brain cells that we're not using die because they're not being used. So the integration work is designed to keep those connections going. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the way that, again, from the, from the naive standpoint or, or lens, the way that I'm trying to look at the mental fitness is that the experience, uh, and everything around it is really part of that, that, Form, I know you're aware of it because you have the book, but that formula that that I'm kind of operating on or suggesting people operate or test at least in their lives of get clear, intentional, and when you do those things, then there's an expansion of opportunity and possibility. 
And I see all of what we've, we've been talking about around that clarity piece and just, again, getting clear on you know who we are and who we're striving to become or what past trauma is there that we might not even know that's there and so forth. And just, again, bringing that to light. But then with the integration piece, this then for me, it really comes back to just like forming habits, right? It's like the intentional part where do my do my current habits now now that I know what I know do my current habits and systems and the way that I'm thinking and operating each day support where I want to be going or are they pushing me farther away like that's the part that I'm excited to to work with you on I love that you just said that because you know I think when we combine intentionality with with a habit then we have a ritual Yes. Because one way of thinking about rituals, and I don't mean necessarily like in a, in a religious sense, is a, a habit that we ascribe meaning to. Yeah. And yeah. usually when we ascribe meaning to a habit and, and create that kind of intentional ritual, we're more likely to keep up with it. Because, you know, consistency can be hard. Of course, of course. And so I think that that meaning piece, that intentionality that you just mentioned, um, can lend itself to keeping people motivated yeah and consistent one of the one of the other topics i wanted to ask you about and again i i noticed this quite a bit in the documentary but i, I also noticed this with some of the guys in my men's group that have come back from just different experiences like ayahuasca and, and other trips and so forth and that it, like the, the the question or, or what comes up often is just the significance of like the ceremony behind uh, these, these medicines. And I feel like, again, I'm just completely making assumptions or projecting here, but I feel like where things get kind of lost in the noise from the past of, uh, you know, your, your stereotypical, like definitions of people on these kind of medications recreationally, just, just for the high of it is very different from what we're talking about here. And then in like the respect for the, the actual medication itself, right. Or the medicines. What, yeah. So, what's your what's your your take on just the ceremony, or how do you you know incorporate that and, and so forth? Yeah. So, I I really when I was designing the space here, which you know you'll see when you when you slept to London to have the experience, is that I didn't want it to feel overly clinical, like enough of the clinical yeah. piece for people to feel safe, but also, um, for lack of a better word, like a, a homey, comfortable. Sure feeling and uh, because to your point the setting is just as important as the mindset of the person going in and the person who's going to be holding space for them or in my case guiding the experience in terms of the ceremonial aspect you know i agree completely that we need whether we're using these you know recreationally or clinically it's really important to honor the power of these compounds and, you know, we have to be mindful of cultural appropriation and, and things like that. But I think ultimately showing that respect and and making sure that we're connecting to that sacredness of these molecules is important. Sure. Okay. I w- just to flip gears a little bit, there's one thing in one of our conversations that you brought up that I, I took note of that I wanted to ask about, but just the you had mentioned the benefits of depth psychology. What is that? Oh, oh it's, it's the psychodynamic stuff in a nutshell. So, um, okay. and there's a long tradition of that. So depth psychology would be contrasted to things like cognitive behavioral therapy. And okay. I would certainly not march in parades against cognitive behavioral therapy. I think it has a lot of really great uses. Okay. Um, but what we've seen from various research studies and studies that are more so coming out in the last five years is that CBT, your cognitive behavioral therapy, works to alleviate the symptoms in the short term, but the relapse rates are quite high. So what I mean by that is mm. a patient can come and have, say, 10 sessions of CBT. That helps. And then, you know, they're more likely to relapse. And when I say more likely, I'm saying more likely in comparison to short-term psychodynamic psychotherapy. Um, So CBT and and therapies like that tend to focus on identifying um, maladaptive patterns of thinking and and really look at treating the symptoms of a mental health issue. Whereas depth psychology looks at identifying things like repetition 
compulsions. So repetition compulsions are the uncanny ways that we find ourselves repeating relational dynamics in our adult lives that uncannily mirror our childhood experiences. And oftentimes, like I said earlier, we're not aware that we're reacting to our boss as if it's our father or responding to our partner as if it's an internalized parent. And part of why I developed the TRIP protocol and why I'm so into the psychodynamic psychotherapy is that I've just found clinically that individuals who I have the privilege of working with and doing that depth work with, I don't see again. And the ones where, you know, if we're doing more of the kind of cognitive piece are back in and you know we have to meet people where they're at and yeah, of course. the psychodynamic piece, you know very patient-centered so you know it's a yeah. it's a great entree like i would say like if somebody's you know going to therapy for the very first time cbt is is a great place to start yeah. you know because most people aren't aware of that noise in their head you know that internal dialogue and identifying core beliefs and that can be a yeah. really great place to start therapy But I think in terms of getting lasting effects, we really need to unpack where those core beliefs are coming from and really get at the etiology of these symptoms and what is maintaining them. And so that's what depth psychology does. Okay. Oh, I'm so excited because, I mean, a lot of what you're explaining just reminds me of, I guess, the more traditional medical system that that we're in right now for the most part when it comes to like chronic disease, right? there's, There's just so much focus on treating symptoms, right? Versus not digging into, okay, well, what's the actual root cause of your hypertension or diabetes or whatever it is, right? And like, I mean, I'm excited for you as a psychologist in terms of like all the advancements that are being made with with psychedelics and, and, the, and the integration and the, the link, right? It must be such a powerful tool. Like even for myself, like ha- having journaled for, probably 12, 15 years, maybe 15 years at this point, like I've, I've noticed themes that come up when I look back at some of these, these journal entries from years back and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Like life circumstances have changed quite a bit, but I'm kind of like writing about the same thing, different circumstance, but that I, I like, that's just a, a sliver of probably what's there. And this is part of what I'm really excited about working with you on is just, that really under like where are some for me in, in particular like where are some of these limiting beliefs coming from or whatnot like what because it's not obvious to me you know so I'm I'm really I'm I'm nervous and excited about what uh, what will surface. It's going to be so fun. And thank you again for trusting me, Mark, because it's, it's really, to your point, right, it's about recognizing those patterns. And then once we see those patterns, we can't unsee them. And then yeah. it's, it's really wild to start noticing them in different contexts. And oftentimes it is just distilled to, you know, one or two kind of core repetition compulsions or patterns. And then working with that and empowering people to be able to catch themselves falling into those old ways of responding. Um, You know, it's, it's health promotion, right? Well, when we define health promotion in terms of like the world health organization's definition of empowering people to have control over the determinants of their health, I think, you know, that's one of the great things about teaching people about these aspects of depth psychology is we're really giving people the tools to be able to heal themselves. Yeah. It's amazing. It's neat All to take right. people behind the curtain, right? I and know. like share well, I that wait. knowledge. Yeah, it's 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 amazing. Um, I'd love to shift into mental fitness a little bit more specifically, and then of course also get into some of your uh, uh, personalized rituals and practices. I know you've you've been meditating for quite some time and also journaling and so forth. So I will definitely ask you about that. But uh, just to open it up, do you like? And I know this, I realize it's just an opinion, uh, maybe not, because you probably have seen this your, your, yourself as well, but, or maybe there's some studies to, to reference, but like, is there, do you think there's some sort of uh, ability to accelerate someone's mental fitness, you know, regime or practice with the support of a psychedelic ceremony or kind of complement in the whole flow of things? 
Absolutely, Mark. Absolutely. And so one of the ways that we think about psychedelic compounds is the catalyst. Okay. And and so, you know, whether it's catalyzing, bringing things to the surface or, you know, just catalyzing some movement, because when we think about let's just take depression. Right. I know sure. we're talking about mental fitness, not, you know, mental illness. But so I yeah. don't even use clinical terms like depression. If we just think about burnout, right, which sure. is something that a lot yeah. of people will experience that has a lot of vegetative disturbances. Right. We we're lacking energy. Um, we're lacking vitality. You know, one way of thinking about burnout or depression is it's a loss of vitality and psychedelics can really help us feel alive again and uh, and whether we're talking about a higher dose of a psychedelic or an ayahuasca ceremony or microdosing with LSD, psilocybin, ketamine, MDMA, they work differently, but both are very effective in terms of speeding up um, some of these, you know, mental fitness goals that people have, which usually are around, you know, gaining insight, um, preventing things like the the passion fatigue or, you know, passion burnout that a lot of entrepreneurs like you and I experience or, you know, or at least vulnerable to experiencing and again i think the mechanisms by which they're having that mental fitness promotion is um that it changes the reactivity like it really changes the emotional reactivity to a lot of the things in our day-to-day lives and that's been my experience clinically and personally sometimes people's biggest complaint about life in general is they feel like they're just going through the motions and aren't really present. Autopilot. Right, exactly. And so, you know, microdosing or having a a bigger experience with psychedelics really, I mean, you're you're kind of forced to be present, right? Like once, you know, once you've committed to the psychedelic experience at any level, um, you're committing to being present for the duration of at least the drug effects. Yeah, for sure. How do you how do you personally view or utilize the, like I guess the, either microdosing or uh, a bigger dose, for example? Like how have you been experimenting with that with uh, within your practice or you personally? Um, in my practice, I try to do as few psychedelic psychotherapy sessions as possible, and that's just because I want to make sure that we're uh, saturating all of the material that came up from the first one before we do another one so that we're not rushing through the process. So we don't do another psychedelic psychotherapy session until we've extracted all the meaning from the first one and done quite a bit of integration. Um, I have, so me personally, and a lot of the people that I work with, we do seasonal trips. So I really like that idea just from the connection standpoint of, you know, so for example, in autumn, we will do sessions and I will do a session myself where I think about, so my intention going in for an autumn session would be what needs to fall away? Like, what Mm. do I need to let go of at this time in my life, at this time of the season? What, what needs to just fall away to be, you know, upcycled in the next phase. And so, so we do a little bit of seasonal work that way. And then, um, and then microdosing kind of helps maintain some of those gains for some people, but there's lots of people that will just do four sessions a year and that's all, that's all they need. I like that. I really like that link to seasonality. I mean, I feel like that concept, not with psychedelics obviously because this is the first time we talk about it on the show but just the link with the seasons is such a beautiful perspective shift, right like of just again thinking of you know where, where we are right now in, in canada and in north america you know it's full-on summer it's super hot at this point and many people uh myself included before i moved to a place where there's a, a mountain and stuff to do in the winter would look at winter as like this brutal time of year type thing but when you when you start looking at just nature, it's like you need you know there there is no summer without the winter and the spring and the fall and so forth. Like it all just works so beautifully together. And you, again, if you start walking in the forest and whatnot, and you just see how, like first of all, we can only see a fraction of what's actually happening there. But just 
paying attention to like the miracle of what's happening with things being born and 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 dying and changing and morphing and so forth. So I love the idea of like tapping into that bigger kind of mother nature theme that has been here since the beginning of time essentially and and f- following along that that theme I guess, right? It's got to be really it's even more powerful. Exactly. And I, I don't know that anybody has written about this, but I imagine I'm not the first person to think about the um, that is a metaphor for how we can tolerate negative emotions. I mean, it's arguable that part of why people end up on autopilot, you know, just kind of going through the motions is because we are afraid of our own emotions. And so yeah. we sort of disconnect from them. And so if we think about seasons as a metaphor for being able to accept our own emotions at different cycles, at different times in our lives, and that there's things to learn and uh, and meaning to extract from those experiences, that can be like a great mental fitness tool, a great health promotion tool in general. Yeah, I'm already, my mind's spinning on the journaling prompts for for those themes, that would be great. And the design that can go into that notebook, that's for sure. <laughs> well, and it goes back to some of the spiritual stuff that you talked about where these compounds originated, right? Is like the sacredness yeah. of these molecules and how people using these molecules in religious ceremonies, in spiritual ceremonies, I think really was very much about connecting people yeah. at these different levels with, you know, seasons, with different emotions that yeah. come up and teaching people to embrace those experiences, the good, the bad. I love that. I mean, I'm not a super religious person, but Ecclesiastes, who doesn't love Ecclesiastes, right? There's a time for everything. There's a season for everything. And so that's what I think of when I think of like kind of that seasonal approach and how it can be a metaphor for us tolerating all of the emotions that come up for us. Totally, totally. All right. I totally derailed us uh, with a few questions. I want to, I definitely want to get back to, uh, you know, you specifically, and just as, as, as it stands right now, because I know we all, you know, evolve as humans and we try different things and whatnot, but just to give the, the listeners uh, a flavor of some practices that you have in check either right now or that have been helpful in big shifts in your life and so forth. Like what, I guess let's start there. Like what are some of the non-negotiables when it comes to really anything you're doing to train your mind to work for you instead of against you? I have to meditate, even yeah. if it's only for a minute. Um, okay. It, it just. How really did you start? Because this is like twenty-five years of meditation, right? According to what I've my research. How did it all start? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So I, I was pretty young, and I was dealing with a lot of chaos in okay. in my home life, and I needed something to just quiet my mind. And this is before I even dabbled with psychedelics. And so I had a library card and found myself in the Buddhist section um, and reading about meditation and different breathwork exercises. And then that led me to discovering yoga. (laughs) Mm. Talk about my parents' reaction. (laughs) All of that. I grew up in a Catholic and Jewish home. So you can imagine my bringing home like books about Buddhism. was interesting for my folks to have to deal with. Um, But that's, it was my library card that (laughs) helped introduce me to it. And then I just started practicing, you know, as a little 12 year old, trying to focus on my breath, found it frustrating as I'll get out, like most people do. Um, But tried different forms until I found something that worked for me. And I'll say that with people I work with too, that, you know, if starting out just focusing on your breath feels too difficult for you, try yoga or walking or a running. We can make anything mm-hmm. mindful, yeah. right? And to use John Kevitson's definition, it's really just that intentionality of being present and choosing something to focus on for a specific period of time. So yeah, meditation has really allowed me to feel um, yeah, quieter and more in control of okay. where my mind is wandering and, and just being aware of my emotional reactivity to things. Um, so I would say, yeah, meditation is something I have to do every day. Otherwise, I'm not so when are delightful you doing it now? to be around. Yeah, you're uh, very first... delightful to be. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, first thing in the morning, 
Okay. And before bed. So I will usually okay. start my day with a few sun salutations and okay. then uh, just a brief five or 10 minute meditation. And usually I'll do some intention setting um, okay. around that. So whether it's, you know, today I'm going to be kind to myself. Sure. Um, and then at the end of the day, another just, you know, three pose asana, like just three yoga poses before bed. Okay. And another just kind of winding down meditation yeah. um, just to get out of my head and into my body to prepare for that restorative yeah. piece of sleep. Do you reflect on any prompts while you're doing that at the end of day? Or is it just um, I, something else? I do a bit of, no, I do a bit of journaling before I leave the office because I have, a, okay. I have an incredibly cool job and I have a really rewarding, meaningful job. It's also a really emotionally heavy gig. And so, yeah, before I, yeah, it's, and so before I leave the office, I write down something positive that happened or okay. something positive that didn't happen, like didn't nervous vomit on Mark's podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, exactly. And something nice that somebody maybe said to me about me or the work that I'm doing. And then what positive quality that is an example mm. Uh, for me. So I'm kind of ending my work day on a positive note. And then when I'm meditating yeah. before bed and I'm starting to, you know, have maybe anticipatory anxiety about the next day or thinking about all the things I didn't get done, I go back to those positive qualities diary entries oh, and just kind of love that. ground myself in those yeah. as a way of just, it's like a touchstone, right? To, yeah. Yeah, you know, positive vibes. Yeah, for exactly. Sure. Well, and you're just, I mean, you're, you're essentially just giving your, your, your mind a bit of a massage before you leave the office type thing, right? And just like, really, like, so you're not walking into your, your personal life or your, your, the next, you know, time chunk of the day with all of that, whatever the emotions were. Because I imagine, I mean, you're seeing people that are like, there's a lot going on. I mean, and you, for, I, Again, I'm projecting, but I, I imagine for you to be able to hold space for others and be very present, I mean, you can't possibly, you know, take all that in and not release it, you know, in some capacities. Exactly. And that is part of how I release it is being able to just focus on some of those positive things. And the other way that this works, in addition to just recalibrating my lens so that I'm not driving home thinking, oh my goodness, why did I say that? And such yeah. a, why didn't I say this, um, is when I'm having a tough day or if I've had a, you know, a tough session or I'm nervous about something, I can sure. go back to that journal and just open it up to any random page and get back in touch with something that actually happened. It's like, I am a scientist, right? And so yeah. I like evidence, right? And so sure. one of, you know, one of people's biggest complaints about cognitive behavioral therapy is that they feel like they're just lying to themselves, right? They're just telling themselves what they want to hear. And so what's nice mm -hmm. about grounding myself in the How Tatiana Doesn't Suck journal is yeah. uh, it's stuff that actually happened. So I can trust it. Okay. Right? And so it helps so me. Is, so going back to it is really important to your point about like going back and looking yeah. at old entries and, you know, noticing patterns with things. Yeah. So this just, just so I'm clear, because again, like a, a lot of what, what I talk about on the show and, and even for myself is just, uh, it's not to prescribe a recipe f of mental fitness because everyone's different, obviously, but just like my mind is being like, oh, interesting. So it seems like this is like a very... Uh, intentional or strict like gratitude journal and like that's all that's yeah. in there like so that you know when you pick it up to your point you can land on any page and uh, flip your mind into uh, a different state or a positive state and so forth right is there do you have other journals or other means where you process other emotions or release or whatever the case is I do. Yeah. I use some um, journaling prompts. Like, so I don't have like a formal journal that outlines it, sure. but when yeah, I, give me some prompts. So, I'll write these down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When I'm going through like a difficult time or a stressful time, I'll ask myself, what am I reacting to? Mm. And who's, who is having that reaction? One of my very first psychedelic experiences, I ended up drawing this stick figure with a bunch of other stick figures kind of around it. It was, and I was, you know, I was young, um, but it, it really helped me get in touch with the fact that there are different parts of me, which was, yeah. uh, you know, I was a kid, right? So I was, wasn't aware of all of the psychology behind that. And so when I asked myself, who is reacting 
to that? Like what part of me is having this reaction? And then mm. the next prompt from there is what does that part of me need right now? Oh, I like it. And I mean, some of the other prompts that I'll ask myself are what is the fear or what is the anxiety? Of course, they're related and one sure. can't experience fear without experiencing some anxiety. But fear often has an identifiable threat with a relatively predictable course, whereas anxiety is a little bit more ambiguous. Yeah. So I'll ask myself, you know, what is the fear? What is the anxiety? When else have I felt this way? Mm. And, and then that will lead to like who, what, when, where type questions. So like, what did I do? Last time they felt this way. Yeah. How did that help or not help? Who could I reach out to for support? Um, and then just, you know, reminding myself of having overcome difficulties like that before. So those are a lot of prompts. Yeah, but. these are, I got, I've got them all. I mean, you know me well enough. Uh, I, you can never over index on prompts with me or on this show. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. No, those are great. I really love that that idea of what part of me is reacting and what, you know, what does that part need? That's, I don't think I've ever done something like that. I think, I mean, I've asked questions of like what to unpack, what the reaction is and where, where it's coming from and, and so forth. And also judging whether it's, it's a valid reaction or, or not. Um, but I like that, like getting very specific and, and going a little bit deeper, right? That's, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's good stuff. Now, now I'm getting more nervous for our experiences. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's going to be great. <laughs> I love it. Do you have any, um, uh, and you don't have to provide prompts, but do you have any just like general check-in rituals or practices like on a daily basis where you're just kind of, you know, easing into the day or end of day or anything like that? Um, yeah, I think yeah. transitions are super important. And so I ease into the day, as I mentioned, with, you know, a little bit of yoga and meditation. And then I have a very mindful espresso. I love coffee. <laughs> and yeah. so I don't, I don't hop on my phone. I don't, you know, jump on email. I, um, I really try to ease into the day and ease out of the day. I think it's important to move my body. So I do some form of physical activity beyond yoga every day. So whether it's, you know, spin or a run or weightlifting, I really think it's important because I need to your point, right? I need to discharge some of that energy that I've been yeah. holding from bearing witness and suturing emotional wounds. And so that energy has to go somewhere. Yeah, and so sure. I discharge that through physical activity. And this sounds really basic. And I learned this in my training with John Kabat-Zinn when I was 19. I had the pleasure of working with him and doing the mindfulness-based stress reduction program. And, uh, and he taught us this mindful check-in, which is just, am I breathing? Mm. And where in my body can I feel the breath? And what part of my body feels connected to the ground or some other surface because the breath is so important. I mean, like you said, at the beginning of the show, before we started recording, we just took one breath together to yeah. kind of level, right? And so we don't realize that we're holding our breath, that we're clenching our jaw, that we're wearing our shoulders as earrings. Yeah, and so, so I true. check in with myself. Um, I do 50 minute sessions. So I always have okay. like the 10 minutes in between to, you know, do my quick chart note and then yeah. just check in with myself like okay just yeah. like unclench the jaw do a little bit of like progressive muscle relaxation and just make sure that i'm breathing yeah those mini i it's i'm so happy you brought that up because i've uh, this is something i haven't done for my my entire life it's something that i've been doing quite recently not recently but often i should say in the last probably five years or so and it's made such a difference but just like even going, you know, from, from meeting to meeting or instead of jamming on emails before coming into this podcast, for example, like to give ourselves the permission to, to leave space, right? And I mean, for you, obviously, you know, you're processing, you know, what's happening in, in sessions and giving some time for yourself and, and for others that could be a meeting or uh, whatever product. It doesn't matter what it is, frankly, but it's just, I feel like the default mode is to just jam, 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 and like compact as much as we or jams or, or stuff in as much as we can in, in a given day. And then we wonder why like we get to the end of the day and we just feel emotionally exhausted. 
right? There's just no time to process and think and just, you know, let the mind settle a little bit. Exactly. You're you're probably familiar with this, but there's a RAIN meditation. And RAIN stands, I believe, for recognize, allow, investigate, and non-identify. And the gist of that four-step mindfulness process is to create space, right? Because usually when we're overwhelmed, whether it's overwhelmed with the demands of a job or, you know, parenting or other, you know, activities of daily living, when we're overwhelmed, usually we just need a little bit of space between us and yeah. whatever it is that we're experiencing. Yeah. Speaking of space, I don't, I, I'm conscious that we're about a minute over our scheduled time here and I don't want to run into your buffer time. So if I'll, I'll just, I'll start wrapping up, just have a couple questions for you if, if you're still okay to, to continue. Um, Absolutely. One just being, like what questions should we be asking at this stage of just like where we're at with psychedelics? Or I guess, you know, I don't like the language should. What questions are you asking, I guess, or that, you know, would be beneficial for just the the the, the whole body of work, I guess you could say? Yeah, so I think in order to, you know, in the Renaissance, in order to prevent what happened in the past from happening again, I hate to frame it this way, Mark, but we need to legitimize it a little bit with, I think, yeah. some scientific understanding, like some rigorous scientific understanding of the mechanisms by which these compounds are having their effects. I think that there are multiple protocols that are going to be effective for people in terms of mental fitness, in terms of mental wellness and health promotion. And so like, there's no one right protocol. I don't think that we need to go down that whole. Um, but I think it's important that we examine, you know, what is happening in the brain? What is happening in the body? Um, what is happening at the level of consciousness and how, how much of an expanded state of consciousness do we need in order to get the effects that we're looking for? What, um, what maintains the gains, right? Is it integration? Is it microdosing? Is it, um, you know, some combination, of these things, mm. how frequently should people be having experiences? Like there's something to be said about not chasing a feeling and, yes. you know, and, yeah, well and novelty being really important for, for wellness. And so, yeah, looking at like the frequency that people need to have these experiences in order to, to promote mental fitness. So those are just a couple of questions yeah, off the top of my head. Last one for you is a question for me. What, um, I guess, what should I think about as we near our time together and, and as someone coming into this as the, uh, as, the, as the first time, like, I guess, any advice that you would leave for me and anyone listening that is interested in going, th- on going down or in going down this path? That is such a great question. I mean, you're already open, you're already flexible. um, And so those are really key components. Like if we think about the big five personality traits, like we definitely want to see openness and and some flexibility in people. And I think... So this is a, a lot of people describe the experience as ineffable. I know, realize that sounds oxymoronic <laughs> to describe something as ineffable, but that's a lot of the language. But I always encourage people to think about how they are operationalizing things. So my question to you would be, how would you define a good experience? Yeah, okay. Like, like, you know that, what, because we say like, I, I do this all the time in, in my clinical work is people will say, I want to feel better or I want to feel loved or I, I want to feel safe. But the way that I feel safe is probably very different than the mm. way that you feel safe. And so I think it's important that we operationalize that a bit, that we unpack it, that we're, it goes back to what you said about intention, Mark, and that, you know, we want to be clear about what it is that we're looking for. Yeah. Because if you don't know what you're looking for, any road will take you there, right? Yeah, exactly. All <laughs> so, said. But yeah, being being able to identify what is, what is the outcome that I'm yeah. looking for? How do I, Mark Champagne, define a good trip? Perfect. Well, I will complete my homework on that. I will definitely include uh, prompts along that vein when writing my experimental mental fitness protocol that I will, of course, share with you beforehand. Um, 
and I'm excited. And, and Tatiana, thank you so much. I mean, I can't, I feel like this is just, you know, the beginning of our journey together. That's for sure. And I'm, I'm excited and getting grateful uh, for you to, to be there to, to support the whole process. And I'm excited to document and, and at least share my perspective with uh, people in this audience. And hopefully, you know, it can help someone on the other side that may be in this exact same position or, or on the fence and not sure and looking for more information. Um, you know, hopefully we can, we can help some, some more people. So, so big thanks for, for making time to be on the show and then a higher thank you for, you know, just you being curious and experimenting with your brother at a young age and, you know, coming back with, you know, different mindfulness practices when your parents were looking at you like you were crazy and just like sticking with, I guess, your curiosity, because there's a lot of people that are benefiting because of the work that you do. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for saying that, Mark. That's going straight into my positive qualities diary. (laughs) Amazing, as it should. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm so excited about all of the next steps. And uh, to quote Casablanca, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. (laughs) Absolutely. 